the Science Inside podcast. This is the Science Inside with Elna. Hello and welcome to the show. My name is Elna Schutz and this is the Science Inside. And I'm Lebochang Madisha. On the show today, we have been inspired by a discovery that you might have heard about. Scientists have said that they have found the world's oldest color dating back as far as 1.1 billion years. The color which is said to be bright pink is pigments extracted from rocks deep beneath the Sahara Desert right here in Africa. A scientist from Australian National University in the Research School of Earth Sciences, Dr. Nergunelli, had also previously found black shells from the Taudeni Basin in Mauritania, uh, West Africa. And the pigments found there are said to be more than half a billion years older. So this current bright pink pigment discovery is a molecular fossil, can you believe it, of chlorophyll. And um, it was produced by ancient photosynthetic organisms inhabiting an ancient ocean that has long, long since vanished. The fossils range from blood red to deep purple in their concentrated form. And when they are diluted, create this very bright pink. In the study... Billion-year-old rocks were crushed into powder so that they could be extracted and analyze molecules of ancient organisms from them. The researchers say that this analysis of pigments confirms that tiny cyanobacteria dominated the base of the food chain in the oceans a billion years ago, which helps to explain why animals did not exist at that time. Label, I don't know what you think about this story, but I'm quite surprised by this headline that there is such a thing as the oldest color. I thought we just had red and yellow, green, like you learned in primary school. Listen, Alna, I believe that there are colors that we don't know, genuinely, because the world is so big and the spectrum, the color spectrum is so wide, we're likely to miss a color to somewhere in between. Right, I mean, there's lots of flowers and things, but you won't get every single pink. There must be something we haven't discovered yet. Exactly. But the thing is, what this really got me thinking about was not just pigments and the chemistry of color, but the really big part um, in this is, of course, not just the actual color, but your eyes. And I'm not so convinced all eyes are the same. I mean... I believe you. I'm with you all the way. Like, that is a real thing. I don't think the green you see is the green I see. Have you had that argument with someone yes. before? <laughs> you see purple, but because you were taught it's green, you say it's green. And maybe I see red and I say it's green because I was taught red is green. It's po- it is possible. Well, I found it quite interesting that actually there are three different genes responsible for color vision. And what makes this story behind color vision even more interesting is that the green and red genes are found on the X chromosome. And it is the manipulation of those two genes alone which is related to things like color blindness. And I don't know if you knew this, but 8 to 10% of specifically the male population is colorblind. I know wow. I know quite a lot of guys who are colorblind. I've never, ever met a single woman who had problems with her, her greens and her reds. And this genetic um, predisposition um, is specifically in men. And that's why. So I thought this was very interesting because it's almost like natural genetic selection has provided women with a frequent ability to better discriminate between colors than men, if you want to say it like that. That's true. But also what's scary is like if a lot of men are colorblind and a lot of men work in like the electrical industry and where they have to work with wires that are color-coded, Kind kind of raises concerns. Like, are these people really connecting the right things? <laughs> Not to mention traffic lights and being a pilot. Actually, green and red are pretty important in our world, uh, not just as colors, but from an optometry perspective, which is exactly what we will be getting into in our main story for today. So, Lebo, keep your questions for our expert later. Definitely. In Unscience today, we are asking where the cool kids from high school ended up later in life. Yeah, we're trying to find out where they went. All those kids who are like, oh, I'm the cool kid with all the cool clothes. Where are they now? Science has the answers. Can you believe it? (laughs) 
<laughs> like, wow. And then <laughs> later in the show, we get to the bottom of things with um, another optometry expert. Specifically this time, I'm hoping that we'll be able to surprise you with some things around your eyes, even though you've always had them. There might just be some things around optical illusions, around blind spots that should surprise you about how your brain reads what what your eyes are giving it. That is all on the show today. Oh, wow. That sounds really, really interesting. But before all that, we'll get into the news, of course. You can join us on our social media. Feel free to share stories with us. Join us on Facebook as VowFM and tweet us at VowFM, hashtag Science Inside. If you miss any part of the conversation, it's not a problem at all because the podcast is up on iTunes as well as our website, which is very easy to remember. Vits.journalism.coza forward slash science. We also have a WhatsApp line if you want to send us a voice note, especially if you're colorblind. We would love to hear from you. It's 084-078-4912. Let's get into the news. You're listening to The Science Inside, bringing you science around major news events. Now let's get into our science news with Lebo Madisha. What do you have for us today, Lebo? Hello, everybody. Um, today, I have something that could hit all of us where it hurts. Climate change has done it, guys. This story is from thesciencedaily.com. Now, when environmental environmental specialists address things like global warming, what people generally hear is global warming is causing a rise in sea levels, and we never really take it seriously. So, okay, it's fine. Maybe this time... The idea of whole cities being underwater isn't going to alarm you. But one thing will. The internet not being there because the cities are underwater. Not the whole city, obviously. But part of the city is underwater. Could actually just affect you. Okay. Don't touch us on that on our internet level. That is the one thing we all love and hold dear. We need our Facebook, our Twitter. We need our cat pictures. <laughs> Don't let climate change take that away from us. Yeah, no. Climate change is, sadly. It is taking away those things from you. Your internet is going to go away. So you're not having internet. I'm not having internet. We're all not going to have the internet. Okay, explain this to us. Okay, so what has been found is that fiber optic cables that have been buried heavily in heavily populated areas, obviously close to water, have been in like they've been facing a threat now because of these rising sea levels. So according to studies conducted by the University of Wisconsin-Madison and University of Oregon, Um, They've seen that vital communication infrastructure could be submerged in rising sea levels within about 15 years. So this is not like, oh, in the next 100 years, we're going to lose the Internet. It's 15 years in our lifetime. So, Lebo, obviously we're joking about cat memes and and Facebook, but the Internet is also important in so many other things a lot of um, hospital systems run on internet a lot of communication a lot of business so this is really going to hit us quite hard true our our world basically runs on the internet other than money the internet does run our world and people are most are most likely to take this issue seriously and look at a more viable solution not that i'm throwing shade but i mean you could change the way we do things and go a little bit more green. But anyway, the study did suggest that by 2030, over 46,000 kilometers of these fiber optic cables would be underwater. U.S. cities like New York and Seattle were said to be the most susceptible. But that doesn't mean that the rest of the world is like on the safe zone. There will be no internet for all of us. So this is a real problem. The whole world will be at a standstill essentially because these fiber optics have been exposed to water. I mean, obviously, it, it depends where you are and what parts of the internet you're actually accessing and which servers. But it is it does sound like a very serious threat to this part of our lives. Do they have some solutions at least? To be honest, when they did build this infrastructure about 20 to 25 years ago, No one was really thinking about climate change and the effects it would have on anyone. So 
when they found out about these, the authorities of the physical internet were surprised themselves that they had to do this much quicker. They had to find a solution much quicker than they thought they'd have to find one. So they thought they'd have like a good 50 years to fix the issue. And yeah, that turned out to be a lie. Turned out to be a sham. (laughs) So right now they're still working on temporary solutions to buy them some time to figure out a permanent solution. And the thing is with the fiber optic cables, they're water resistant, but not waterproof. So that's why this is such a big deal. Like it's not like the cables that run from continent to continent underwater. They are, those ones are waterproof. These ones, not so much. So just a little bit of exposure and we're all in trouble. Mm. So one temporary solution that they have come up with is um, building stronger seawalls. But I mean, we can't keep the sea away forever. Yeah, it makes sense. I mean, there must be something. 15 years is a long time. There must be something that can be done. How exactly did did the researchers find this all out? Okay, so what they did is that they combined data from the Internet Atlas. I actually didn't know the Atlas had, I mean, the Internet had a whole Atlas, <laughs> which is a global map of the Internet. Very cool. And they also took projections of sea levels rising from the National Oceanic Atmospheric Administration. And the study only showed the effects of rising sea levels in American regions. But as I said before, this doesn't mean that the rest of the world is off the hook. Mm. I mean, if we think about it, Google main bases in America so probably they're using a, a frame that's somewhere in those areas and could affect us so no Google yeah and um, obviously we have cities like Cape Town that are that are very close to the water we ourselves have a have a large coastline as a country but I think for me the takeaway of this story is that as climate change progresses it's just going to affect more and more of our life and more and more areas of our lives that are going to be very serious and we can't start worrying about it when things are down and things are problematic. Definitely. And the other thing that we should consider is that with the internet, we have very effective communication. And if the internet is shut down, an infected area won't be able to effectively communicate in time that they're in trouble. Mm. So that's one, that's one other thing that's a bit... Like, oh, it's yeah. a bit scary. I'm not keen to go back to, like, sending letters with doves. Imagine. Anytime soon. Or, like, taking a whole trip, a two-week trip on a boat to just send a message. No, no, thank you. Not after Twitter. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks so much for that news, level. My story today comes from the University of Oxford, also um, via sciencenews.org. I've got to ask you, Lebo, are you scared of heights? Actually, not really. They kind of excite me. Yeah, me too. I like skydiving, like all that stuff. I'm there. See, I'm that person who's like, no, I'll never do it. Then when you put me in the situation, I'm like, challenge accepted. Yes. So you and I are not the targets of this particular story, but I know a lot of people are incredibly afraid of heights i actually shared this story a story with somebody on our on our news team and his answer was very clearly never (laughs) ever even if you paid me because he's terrified so a lot of people are terrified of heights it's a very real phobia and you can obviously go to get various psychological treatments a lot of them involve you being exposed very slowly very safely to the thing that you're afraid of right that that makes perfect sense like slowly expose them to it until they get used to it but if someone's really really scared of heights or whatever it is that they're scared of they obviously don't want to go anywhere near that thing yeah even if it helps them they'll be like no thank you obviously that makes sense right um in this recent clinical trial i want to tell you about actually is sort of an answer to that it means you don't need to go near uh, near that thing that you're afraid of at least not in real life oh okay so this study looked at 100 people who were relatively or very afraid of heights and gave half of them a new kind of treatment for about six half hour sessions over just two weeks and they got some really good results all thanks to virtual reality 
Okay, hold on. Virtual reality. Okay, okay. So it's not just that thing that people use to play some cool games or walk around in museums virtually. Yeah, yeah. You know those funny little headsets? I'm yeah. sure most of us have seen it by now. Um, this is one really great application of this. So you have the normal setup with VR headsets, handheld controllers and headphones as you might have seen or used yourself. So the way it worked was that patients were in a virtual high-rise building and they had to go up floor by floor and do all these little kinds of tasks that got harder and harder and basically it was meant to build up memories or experiences in their brain of them having safely navigated heights so because they did it in virtual reality they'll be less afraid in Real. Real reality. Real reality, yes. <laughs> so um, some of the tasks were things like standing close to the edge of something. There was rescuing a cat from a branch or even um, ultimately one of the last ones was standing on a moving platform that went out into like an open space in the building, which that sounds scary even to me. Yeah. Um, and then they were guided by a virtual therapist character the whole time. That's pretty cool. And it worked? Yeah. So they filled out, the the people being tested filled out a bunch of questionnaires regularly about their fear. And the people in the VR program dropped those answers of how afraid they were by Mm. almost half. So they also reported significant improvements in their physical fear symptoms over time. And this wasn't just in the VR system. This was actually outside when they were in real situations that would normally have sort of made them freeze up or whatever it might be. So this was compared to the other group that received no treatment. So it must be said this wasn't compared to the current alternatives. It wasn't compared to in-person therapy or anything. It was just compared to a control group. So a control group, as in people who... Just remained remained afraid. So they didn't have any uh, treatment. Okay. It wasn't that it was compared to to current treatments. Uh, okay. Yeah. Okay, that's actually a good result. I'm sure it's a little bit less scary doing that than physically co- confronting that actual fear that you have. Yeah, I can understand that a lot of people might still say like, oh no, I wouldn't even want to go near a virtual high rise. But especially if you have a really terrible crippling fear, this is pretty great because it's a fully automated system. You can work through it yourself. You don't have to go see a therapist if you can't afford one or can't get to one or um, you don't have access. Maybe maybe you can't leave your house, whatever it might be. This just makes it way easier and people can even access it, as I said, from their homes. Even though the one thing that did come up for me, as with many of these kind of mental health questions, is... Are there any safeguards? Because if somebody has a really extreme phobia, they might just freak out in the system. They could have a panic attack. Yeah, it could really scare them. So I would just love to know what the kind of support is around that system. Are there any kind of inbuilt um, panic buttons or responses so that maybe I can connect with a therapist if I'm in there and I'm like legitimately freaking out. That's true but another thing, the first thing that came to mind for me with this virtual reality thing, it's virtual reality. It's virtual reality, sorry. So now when you walk and you're at the edge of your virtual your virtual building I would be the person to continue walking like I would just keep on walking and Not if, you're, not if you have a phobia though. Okay, true. So, so I mean, yes, technically you could, but the whole idea is that a person... Um, is My question unlikely. is, how real is it really? Oh, because, you're going to fall to your death? Yeah, like, how real is it? Because you are conscious that this is virtual reality. So, if I just, like, dangle my foot a bit, then I realize... There's more ground here. can yeah. keep on walking. So, um, there are systems that have, like... Um, that that have floor floor plans, so there okay. are there there are rooms that you can use virtual reality in that actually have like like little steps and stuff oh, to make okay. it more real. So perhaps they'd have one of those that you could go to get the treatment in. Probably. Um, otherwise, you just kind of have to deal with it if you're doing it <laughs> in your living room. Yeah. Um, so they are hoping to expand it to other phobias, but did mention that it is unlikely to work on its own for more complex mental health issues, which is understandable. You're not going to put somebody with psychosis you know on this kind of program but very interesting for people who have phobias 
After the break, we get into our full uh, Science Inside show today all about seeing and colors, especially if you've ever wondered if you might be colorblind or have any problems with your eyes. This next one is for you. This is the Science Inside with Elna. Welcome back to the show. This is indeed the Science Inside with myself, Alna Schutz. Remember, you can find us on Facebook and Twitter. Make sure you use that hashtag, Science Inside. We are Vow FM. And we are looking into the science inside, this big news story, at least within the science world, around a research study about the oldest color possible. Now, of course, color is all about chemistry, but it also has to do with our eyes. So that's what we're going to be looking at now, how exactly our eyes perceive color and how it can even go wrong. We're speaking to Kasia Mankis, who is an optometrist and the founder of iTech Optometrists which has been providing specialized, innovative and complete eye care solutions for over 24 years. So they have definitely been in the space for quite a while. And she'll be speaking to us about how our eyes and the brain work together to help us perceive color. We will find out all kinds of other things that color does in helping us to stay safe. Kasha, thank you for joining us on The Science of Science. Thank you very much, and it's a pleasure, and yes, vision is my passion, so it's really a privilege to talk. Thank you. So, let's talk a little bit specifically about color blindness, because I think that is the first thing that comes to mind for a lot of people when we talk about optometry and colors. What is happening there between the brain and the eyes? Now, you, you need the eye and the brain to see color. Um, the one can't happen without the other one. Um, maybe what one should do is to explain how do we see color. Um, because you can have a color vision deficiency because of a problem with the eye, or you can have a problem, for example, with the optic nerves that need to relay all the messages from the eye to the brain and that can also affect color vision. Um, the other thing is we, we normally talk about color blindness, but it's not exactly the right term. Um, we, the correct term would be a color vision deficiency hmm. because to see just black and white is extremely rare. Um, most people can see a little bit of color, but it's just their perception of color is different from what most of us see. All right. So, um, so do, you, do you want me to explain a little bit how do we see color? Yes, please do. Okay. So, so what happened is if, if we look at color, the, the color of light is basically determined by its wavelength. So if we have longer wavelengths, that would correspond, for example, to, to red light and your shorter wavelengths will respond to blue light. So the color is a wavelength. We have certain cells at the back of our eye, pigment cells that we call cones, and these cells are sensitive to different wavelengths of light. And that is actually what enable us to distinguish colors. So these little cells transmit messages then from the eye to the brain and specifically then the occipital cortex which then produce the sensation of the color. So you need to have the three different types of pigment or, or cones um, that pick up the different wavelengths and, and if, if one of those pigments are faulty you will have a color vision deficiency. All right, and I'm assuming that this um, is genetically determined to some degree, or can this develop? Yes, you, you can. You can have two causes. Genetics. Um, most people that that's colorblind, um, it's genetically inherited um, from the parents, but specifically the mother. Um, and you can also have other reasons for color blindness, which is not inherited. That can be um, caused by a variety of problems like macular degeneration or diabetic retinopathy, glaucoma, 
cataracts, injury to the eye, and aging. So most children that have a color vision deficiency are actually born with it. But um, we do get a lot of older people because of injuries or eye diseases that um, the color vision is also um, affected by that. I seem to have this stereotype around color blindness or, or um, trouble with seeing colors correctly that it seems to occur more in men. Is that is there any truth to that? You are actually a hundred percent right. Um, color blindness is much more common in men than in women, and this is specifically with the genetically inherited type of color blindness. Um, your red green color deficiency is actually linked to a defect um, which you will get on the on the X chromosome. So. If you have um, a mother that carry a faulty gene for color vision deficiency, if she's got a son, he's got a very high likelihood of having a color vision deficiency. But if it's a daughter, um, if the color is not, if the dad is not colorblind, she will be a carrier as well. So you mm-hmm. actually inherit your color vision deficiency from your mother but it's normally the male that's affected by, by it. So you can get it in females, the red-green. It's very rare, but then the mother must have the carrier for the defective gene and the father must be colorblind. Mm. Let's talk a little um, bit... Sorry, yeah. carry on. Um, I just wanted to say what, what's interesting is you get two types of color blindness. I'm sorry for interrupting you. The, the one is the red-green color deficiency. That's definitely genetically related. But your blue-yellow color blindness, which is much rarer, is not linked to the, um, to the uh, X chromosome. So that you get in both um, um, sexes. Um, it's, it's not linked to, to the, the And yet, as you mentioned earlier, this has far more to do with your actual eye. It's not the brain making a decision to only see certain colors. It has to do with the kind of cones um, present in picking up those wavelengths of light. Yes, that's correct. Yeah. Yeah. So so it's just that the, the faulty gene for the to, for one of the pigments to be absent is, is carried on the sex chromosome. Mm. Now, even though I can imagine it's not the most comfortable thing in the world to be um, to be colorblind, you might start wearing some strange shoes that you thought were a different color. <laughs> it also it also isn't the worst. It also isn't the worst condition I can think of medically. Tell us a little bit about the practical effect of this on people's lives. Yes. There's, um, it's, it's actually very interesting. Um, I know there was a railway accident, um, I think it was in the 1800s, where there was a big accident apparently because of the conductor being colorblind. So that can really be dangerous. Obviously, um, for pilots and electricians, if you don't have um, good color vision, it, it can have bad consequences. But in your daily life, um, it's normally not a huge problem. All the traffic lights we know, um, the, where's the red and 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 the blue oh, and the green so that makes it easier but i think with labeling um to make a filing system easier that might be a little bit more um difficult um the other thing is also in the olden days that they used the green boards at school and that was a big problem because if the teacher would write with a red crayon on that green board and you have a child that have a red green color deficiency you would not be able to see that but if the teacher would write on a with, with a green or a red pen on a whiteboard even a child with a color deficiency will see that so the big thing is with children um, 
a lot of the testing, um, especially perceptual tests, sometimes involve colors um, and they need to build peg patterns and things like that. So then it's important that they know this child is color deficient so that they just don't assume that it's that the, the child couldn't understand it, but it's because of his color vision deficiency. Is there any need to try to correct color blindness? I'm immediately reminded of a video um, making the rounds on social media a little while ago where somebody put on glasses that helped them uh, see with corrected color for the first time in their life. And there was great enjoyment and joy. But in the end, as you say, unless you happen to be wanting to be a pilot, it won't have the yeah. hugest effect on your life, except maybe some bad dress choices. So is there a yes. need to want to correct this? Yeah. I think people are always curious to know what, what, they, what they miss. Um, I think that's really the nice thing of having these, these lenses. I think the other thing is if you would go into a supermarket and you want to pick up an apple, and you're not sure are these the red ones or the green ones. Um, you, you know, you even get apps now on your smartphones that have the ability to read the color for you. So just to make sure that you're not taking the wrong color. Um, so I know they're also doing um, genetic testing to, because at the moment, there's not a cure for colorblindness. The lenses that you are talking about now and the apps are all just a way to, to make your life easier or to enhance certain colors to make it easier. But it doesn't cure it if you take the device off and still colorblind. Um, they are doing research where, with genetics where they have done research on monkeys where they inject certain genes into the eye and they were able to correct the color deficiency. But I, I definitely won't go to that, that extreme. Um, I think I will use um, an app or a glasses for things that might really be difficult and for the rest I won't bother. I agree with you, even though it might be interesting. I doubt that 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 this is something that we truly have to put science behind to fix. Just a last yeah. one from from me. <laughs> Kasha, uh, of course, most of us don't aren't necessarily colorblind, might be interested in it as a concept, but even for just people who, who think they see everything correctly, are we seeing things the same way when it comes to color? If you see green and I see green, what are the chances that we're seeing the same kind of green? Because I'm sure we all have an anecdote of a situation where we might have thought about, is this purple or is it pink? Is that a thing mm. of linguistics? Or does everybody see colors slightly differently? I think animals and people see color different because we have different pigments. Um, but... What we also need to remember is color is a wave, is, is wavelengths. So it's to do with your, your spectrum. So I think what we do know is certain people with a mild color deficiency might be able to distinguish colors, but they have difficulty to distinguish different shades of the same color. So a color vision deficiency, you can get many different types and, and subforms. So I think most people that have um, the full spectrum of the pigment should see more or less the same color. But I think a lot of people are maybe not even aware that maybe one of their pigments is not fully developed and therefore that can affect the ability to see different shades of the same color. So if you look to, at your color vision testing, you get many different types. And some of them are much more... Um, complete than others you can um you can do a color vision testing online or even you know with with your iphone and um, there's many apps that you can download to test color vision but your real um more in-depth testing need to be done with an eye um, practitioner we have very specific tests where we can test a patient's perception of color 
and not just of the ability to see red, yellow, blue, and that, but different shades. So depending what test you use, you can um, you can test that actually in a lot more detail. Fascinating. Um, speaking to Kasia Menkes, who is an optometrist and the founder of iTech Optometrists, finding out more about the link between our eyes and color. If you've ever noticed that people keep saying something is purple or green or red when you just think it's brown, maybe it's time to to go see someone and and check if you maybe genetically are predisposed to some kind of of color blindness to some degree even if it is just to finish those arguments about what shade of dress she really is wearing (laughs) thank you so much for joining us on the show kasha Thanks very much. It was a pleasure chatting to you. Right. So after the break, we will be getting into our unscience feature where today we ask the question, where did the cool kids go? We're looking at some research around kids or teenagers that were perceived as very popular in high school and what happened to them later. Keep listening. Stay curious. Stay informed. Stay on the Science Inside. You are still on the Science Inside and right now it is time for and science it's the one little break in the show where we look at some very strange research often it does end up being quite serious but in the beginning if you just hear about it you'll say to me alna really scientists are spending time money and effort on this are you kidding me so today's unscience was produced by myself and comes from improbable research i will be chatting to lebo as always who's here with me let's get into it Unusual, unlikely, unscience. Okay, Lebo, for today's unscience, we're going back to high school. A brain, a beauty, a jock, a rebel, and a recluse. Can't believe this is really happening to me. Lebo, did you love high school? I really have no emotional attachment to high school and its whole experience. It wasn't was, my thing. It wasn't your vibe. Yeah. Were you a cool kid, though? From my first response, I'm pretty sure you can tell that, no, I was just a kid. <laughs> <laughs> I I know this will be very hard for you to believe, considering that I am a science journalist now, but I was a total nerd. <laughs> Let's be honest. Oh, wow. Were you like the kid who was always studying or reading books and doing all that nerdy stuff maybe i was a cool kid in the nerd group and i just oh. didn't know that's very possible but i guess we all know those groups in high school right even if you've just seen it in a movie we all know they're real in some way and i can definitely understand feeling that pressure as a teenager of wanting to fit in they don't know i'm not cool i can pretend to be cool and they're going to think I'm cool. So it's going to be great. And yes, there are always those cool kids. You always want to fit in with them. We all know them. But a group of scientists from the University of Virginia in the States decided to not let this go. They wrote a paper called Whatever Happened to the Cool Kids? Long-term sequelae of early adolescent pseudo-mature behavior. How's that for a title? Oh, wow. So the study took information from larger long-term research into adolescents and looked at this cool kids aspect in particular. And the sample was uh, of about 180 teenagers and they followed them um, or kept bringing them in between the ages of 13 and 23. Okay, so they wanted to know what happened to all these cool kids, but how did they know who the cool kids were? Like, what do you look at? Do you look at their sneakers? Who wears the coolest sneakers? I don't know. How can you tell? (laughs) Yeah. So kind of, they were looking um, for what they call pseudo-mature behavior. So these are things that would be considered normal for some teenagers, but maybe a problem when it happens early on in adolescence. So think about typical like rebellion or cool kidness. Um, If you think of of movies like The Breakfast Club, you know, that kind of thing. So it's basically behavior that's meant 
to make you look mature and then with it popular and cool, right? So the things that, that they were looking at were things like getting into trouble in some way, breaking the rules, trying to have lots of good-looking friends apparently is a big factor. No, then you're pretty by association. It makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> and then um, getting involved in all kinds of romantic things, of course. The researchers tracked when the teens did things like sneaking into a movie without paying or stealing small items or cash amounts from their parents. They were asked how many people they had kissed and about their use of alcohol and weed, plus a lot of other tests around their popularity and interactions with friends. And again, this was tracked from 13 to 23 years. All right, so they were able to find out exactly who the cool kids were, but what happened after the 10-year period? Were the cool kids still doing these risky things? And how well were they doing? Well, first of all, these behaviors were making kids quite popular at age 13. So it was working out for them. But already at 15, there was less of a link. So it worked early on to do these kind of half mature behaviors, but then it wasn't making them popular. Um, Also, quite worryingly, early levels of alcohol and marijuana use were significantly related to later use at ages 21 to 23, when kids were having problems with these substances early on or with criminal behavior, they were way more likely to have increased problems later. Also, if someone showed those higher levels of pseudo-mature behavior at ages 13 or 15, by the time they hit their 20s, they were getting lower ratings from their peers in terms of how good they were at close friendships. Which makes sense because like using these substances does affect you in the long term as a human being. So they weren't looking just at the substances. It just meant that in general, whichever of these pseudo-mature behaviors they were choosing early on, even if it was trying to have good-looking friends or get into a lot of romantic things or get in trouble for like maybe shoplifting something or whatever it might be, when when those kids were doing things early on, come their early 20s, they were not very popular they were not doing very well at sort of mature strong relationships because they're quite immature like to be honest those things are pseudo mature behavior it's just a fake sensation of mature maturity so as you actually get mature people realize this is actually kind of stupid so they don't want to do it anymore Exactly. So this study might look like it's, it it looks like it's looking at something quite funny, but the results, as you can hear, pretty interesting. These behaviors can easily be overlooked or seen as normal. That's the thing, though. When you're 15 or 17 or 19, these behaviors are seen as just a part of being a teenager, right? Yeah. But it shows, um, this, this study is showing that it should be taken a little bit more seriously when it appears early because it might actually be a sign of of something of a teenager not maturing in the healthiest way. So the problem here that the researchers note is that in the early teens, these behaviors actually do make kids more popular, as I said earlier. And so it's working out well for them. So it's not just rebellion or early maturity. It's actually a way to gain status and belonging. So they keep trying to do those things in the hope that it will keep them cool basically (laughs) which doesn't really work out pretty well and they have to try and find new ways of being cool i guess yeah just be yourself but that's all honestly that is the only way just be yourself that's the coolest thing actually even in high school if you get kids who are genuinely just being themselves they generally get more real praise for their character over kids who are just popular and go to the most parties and do weed they're just known But I mean, they're not appreciated as much as someone who is just themselves. Now we sound like somebody's mom, but I agree. (laughs) (laughs) This has been unusual, unlikely, and science. Next up, we find out more about our eyes. Specifically, why do we not see in blurs? Why are optical illusions so strange? And do you really have a blind spot? Listen, Listen to all of that after the break. Unusual. Unlikely. Unscience. This is the Science Inside with Elmer.
Welcome back. You're still listening to the Science Inside. I'm Lebohang Madisha, and I'm of course with Alna Schutz. We are doing our myth bust segment now. We are little, we're your little science detectives getting to the bottom of things. Yes, this is indeed the part of the show where we like to look at something and just understand it a little bit better. Today we've been talking about our eyes and even though you might use yours every single day you may just be a little bit surprised about quite a bit about them from optical illusions to strange blind spots i want us to get into some of the interesting facts about our eyes with mrs ingrid metzing she's a lecturer in the department of optometry at the university of johannesburg thank you so much for joining us you're welcome so Ingrid, optical illusions, I think, are something uh, that so many of us have some experience with. I'm thinking of the Penrose stairs that never quite seem to stop going up and up and up. Or those pictures at the back of magazines that Mm. I grew up with, I'm sure a lot of other people did, where you have to look at them a little bit squint, a little bit funny, and then you see something else. What is happening um, in these kinds of illusions when it comes to our eyes? And, and especially our brain. Okay. Um, in actual fact, everything that you see, Elma, um, it's, 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 it's the light that we are processing. And, and, and uh, what happens is uh, the brain, actually, we see using the brain. The brain is the one that tells us about what is it that we are seeing. So the information that is actually sent to the to, to, to the brain through the neurological system, the neural system, it's the one that will actually determine as to whether whatever we see is it really what it is. So now when you talk about the optical illusions, I'm thinking of, you know, what we call the, the moon illusion, you know? Like when you look up at the sky, you would think that, uh, especially when uh, towards the... Uh, when you look towards the horizon, when it's like full moon and the moon is going down, it will look like the moon is quite big, you know, and very close to us. But then that, those are some of the cues that that information, as it, as it is sent to the brain, it will look like that. But in actual fact, we all know that the, the moon is not that big and it's not very close. So those are some of the illusions that um, actually we, we get to experience uh, in our daily lives. Um, and, and, and some of these illusions uh, are not uh, very practical because uh, what the brain needs is the images coming from the two eyes, you know, for us to make sense as to, you know, how far we, in terms of survival in our environment. So uh, some of these illusions, it's just the illusions. Uh, they are not real they will appear like uh, 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 it's true that the moon is closer. So when you talk about the illusion, then it simply means that it's something that is not real. And yet our brains seem to think that it's real. Yes, our brains will seem to think that it's real. Like, let's let's look at what happens when you're, like, walking up or down or towards a road, you know, maybe driving up on a road that is very open. What you see when you look at that road, you, it will look like, you know, the, the, the road is converging somewhere there towards the end, okay? That is some form of an illusion. The road is not actually converging towards the end of the horizon. Right. That, it that it simply sense. tells you, in actual fact, that actually tells you that there's still the distance that you still have to cover, you're still far from your point of destination. Hmm. But yeah. But you see, it's not just artworks or the moon that uh, that can be quite surprising because our eyes have some interesting tricks up their own sleeves, if I can say it like that. And one is our blind spot. I'm not sure how many of our listeners know that we all have one little part of our eye that isn't actually seeing. Can you tell us a bit more about that? Yes, that is the part... Uh, that is where we call uh, the, it's called the optic disc, our uh, whereby the neural system, the nerves come through into the eye, the blood, and all that. And that part, through that part, we don't have the cones, no, the rods, no, anything, no photoreceptors in that area. 
and that is the area that we call the blind spot. And uh, 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 that is why with some other cars, you know, when you look at the mirror, the driver's mirror, you find that they put that small mirror just to make sure that you actually can be able to see uh, uh, the other parts that are not covered. Because then the mirror will actually reflect light into another to another part of the retina. So we all have our blind spots. And, and at some stage, I think research was done uh, making people aware of the fact that the blind spots, if you're not aware of that, that can also impact and cause you know, people to be involved in some car accident. Like sometimes when a person is driving and then they say, oh, I didn't see that car. I didn't see that there was a car coming. And I think we all experience it. That is why in most cases we have to recheck and check our rear view mirrors. Because sometimes if that image falls on the blind spot, you will not be able to, to pick it up and to see it, actually. And what exactly is happening in that area of our eye? Is it where the, the veins are connecting with the inside of the eye? Or why is the eye not seeing anything in that one field of, of vision? Okay, that is the area, of course, you are right, uh, Elma, is the area through which uh, the nerves are actually, because then we need for, 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 for us to be able to see, because it's the nerve impulses that will send the information through the optic tract, uh, through the optic chasm, and then to the, uh, the lateral geniculate board, which is the, all the, the brain system, which will actually relay the information to the visual cortex. So it is that part that doesn't have, actually, the, the photoreceptors. It doesn't have the, the, even the cones, the rods. It doesn't, it, it, there's nothing there. It's just like, a, you know, it's like just a, a, a part that is actually a, a have all the connections, the wires getting into the eye. So that the information that actually falls onto that, that the, inf- the, the, the eye gathers gets to be sent through the neural system. I'm trying to use as simple language as possible rather than being very scientific. So that is like more the area that doesn't have our photoreceptors, which actually helps us to absorb any light and send that light to, to the brain. And then your brain is is basically guessing what is in that one little part that it can't see. So it's looking at what it can see around your blind spot and then filling in the missing piece. Yeah, what's happening is that the brain is not processing any information on that part of the retina. Because remember the back of the eye, whatever is at the back of the eye is actually projected as it is on the brain. So when light falls on the part of the eye, any part of the eye, that part of the eye is actually represented. That is what we call retinotopic mapping. It's actually represented or is mapped out on the visual cortex. So that part is actually not mapped out. Thus, whenever anything falls onto that, in any image that falls onto that part that is not mapped out on the retina, we never get to see it. This is a very interesting one that you can try out for yourself at home. You can actually mm. try find your blind spot if you put something um, something on the floor or just pick a point on the wall and move around your eye. You'll actually see it disappear. It's a cool little trick that your eyes can do for you. But another mm. interesting one is visual emission where our brains work around some of the information that our eyes are picking up. If we saw everything, just imagine what a blue life would be yeah definitely definitely yeah yeah you know when 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 we actually uh, it's when the you we are reading let me just make an example because everything gets to be projected can you imagine if i'm looking at something it stays on the brain then i look i move my eyes to look at something it's on the brain what sort of confusion was going to be there you know then we would actually experience um, the blurred images, diplopia, uh, double images and all that. So now what happens is we have that uh, period what we call uh, of omission, whereby instead of things, you know, overlapping or being printed on top of each other, because like I've said to you that the back of the eye is actually mapped out. I wonder if you understand that. It's actually mapped out. Each and every part of the back of the eye is, is, is actually represented on the, on, the, on the brain, which is our visual cortex. 
Okay, so now to be able to process everything and to make, to understand everything that we're looking at, there is that period of, of omission, which is actually quite clear when we talk about um, when people are reading, for example. When we are reading, it's, you, 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 you're reading letters in a line, okay? But your eyes are still going back to make sure about, though unconsciously so, of what you have read about. But whatever you have passed in terms of your reading and whatever you're going back to, it doesn't actually get to be, to stay on the brain. Okay, so to give that period of a breather, then there is the period of omission. Otherwise, you would be having everything overlapping on each other or things not being very clear, a period of gladness. Yes, so yeah. even though your eyes are picking up every single thing and seeing blurs and jumping to and fro, your brain is is picking and choosing exactly what it gives you just so that you can cope with the information. Yes, So Definitely. since we're speaking about things that your eyes can see but your brain chooses not to process, there are so many different um, diseases when it comes to the eye or conditions that can deteriorate. Anybody who's ever had to get glasses might remember that feeling of putting them on for the first time and thinking, wow, trees have leaves. I've almost forgotten about this. So I'd like to ask you, how is it possible that things can happen to our eyes like tunnel vision or, or deterioration and our brain almost psychologically blocks it out and doesn't show us just how bad things are getting? Okay, yeah. Um, you know, there are certain conditions which are actually we, we know of a neurological condition which is referred to as glaucoma. What happens with glaucoma is that it, it doesn't affect the central part of vision. You know, if anything affects your central part of vision, you're most likely to see those black spots, the blind spots, because that's the most high-sensitive part of the eye. Okay, but then with that kind of condition, what happens is it happens at the periphery, towards the back of the eye, uh, away from the central part of the eye. Let me just put it that way. So if it is away from the central part of of the eye, it actually doesn't affect your your daily uh, life. You you don't you you. It's something that you can choose to maybe accept or to say maybe it's because I'm becoming old. No wonder now my my field of vision is actually not as wide as it used to be before. And the other problem is that the condition as well doesn't even come with pain. There's no pain. So uh, in that case, then. Most people, they actually find out, especially if they don't get to be uh, to, 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 to go and check their vision, uh, maybe two year, in two years or annually, then you find that they actually realize when it's too late, you know, that they are actually gradually uh, losing vision. The condition is quite nice because the earlier you recognize the difference, you see that there is a problem, then it can actually be controlled. And then the other thing is there are people who are predisposed to the condition. Like if the condition is in the family, if you've got a very high refractive error, some medications as well, you know, oral medication uh, that we usually take, even some of the, uh, 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 you know, uh, eye drops that we take can actually impact or affect uh, uh, cause that condition. Okay, thank you so much. We've, we've been speaking to Mrs. Ingrid Metzing. She is a lecturer in the Department of Optometry at the University of Johannesburg. Thank you so much for giving us some very surprising things about our own eyes. You're welcome, Ilma. You are still listening to The Science Inside. You're listening to The Science Inside, bringing you science around major news events. It's been such a packed show, Lebo, today with um, all kinds of things about our eyes, about color blindness, about learning about the optical illusions. Yeah, no, it's been quite interesting how our eyes play around with our mind or our mind plays around with our eyes. I don't know which one it, it is. It sounds like the brain is the boss because the eyes have all of that information, all those data sets, and then the brain is kind of like, mm, no thanks, don't yeah, want to look at that. It's picky choosy, like, nah, I don't really feel like seeing that today. Well, that's helpful. I don't want to see my whole world in a blur, so I'm pretty happy about that. <laughs> and then in unscience, the cool kids 
aren't doing too well. Shame, hey? Cool kids. Turns out being cool isn't that great. But if you want to be cool, guys, I really, I just encourage people to be whatever they want to be. <laughs> so <laughs> if you want to be cool, be cool and see how far it takes you. Yeah. Well, science is not on your side today. Yeah, science is not on your side. <laughs> <laughs> but be yourself. Be be your own kind of cool. Definitely. Yeah. Uh, thanks goes a big thank you goes to all of our guests featured on the show today, including the team behind the scenes that make all of this possible. Production by Bridget Lepere, Lebo Madisha, Harmony Molefe, and Gloria Mabuza, as well as tech by the always amazing Gutlano Sehame. The podcast is on vits.journalism.coza forward slash science and on iTunes. Lebo, if people want to find us on social media. They can find us on Facebook as VowFM and on Twitter at VowFM. The Science Inside is produced by the Fitz Radio Academy, funded in part by the South African Department of Science and Technology. My name's Alna Schutz. And I'm Lebhang Madisha. Join us again next week. Stay curious. Stay informed. Stay on the Science Inside. The Science Inside Podcast.